I wonder if you've noticed all the talk in our day on the idea of identity. Where do you find your identity? Uh, we find our identity in so many different things. Uh, you may identify, obviously, with a particular generation into which you were born. Some of us are baby boomers. Some of us are millennials. Other of us are Gen Zers. Uh, we find our identity in our families, where our roots come from. Uh, some of us tonight will find our identity, particularly in rooting for a particular team. Yes, even Adam Swift knows that it's Super Bowl Sunday. Um, I don't know who's playing. I don't really care how many hoops they make. I'm just there for the food. So uh, if it's, a, it's an election year. We're going to feel that part of us that finds our identity in a, poli a particular political affiliation, Republican, Democrat, Independent. We find our identity in what we do in our occupation. But how can we be sure that we are finding our identity and building our identity the way that we should be? How do we build our identity? There's no shortage of counsel on how you should be thinking about your own identity in our day. Just uh, for a fun little exercise, I did a little Google search, typed in some key phrases on identity this week, and I found all sorts of interesting things. <laughs> there was one article entitled, How to be true to yourself and cultivate your identity. They listed four things that we all must do. One, listen to yourself. Two, Take control of your own happiness. Three, prioritize your own needs. Four, learn to let go. Another article that was very much kind of a, a motivational speech said, you are who you are, and no one can take who you are away from you. I've learned over time that we are valid no matter what. Then there were very strange articles. This was my favorite one in particular. This person saying, uh, how to build your self-identity, their advice was this, date in private, love in private, be happy in private. That way you can take your losses in private, maintain in private, Rebuild your identity in private. I have no idea what that means. You can explain it to me after the service in private. <laughs> and then there are just downright dangerous, dangerous things out there as well, like this one that I read in another article. Quotes, one of the healthiest habits for self-identity, take nothing personally. It has everything to do with them and nothing to do with you. The word on the street in our day is be, know who you are and be true to yourself. Now, the Bible comes along and challenges our notions of identity. It asks us not to find our identity in what we are or things even outside in our world, things extraneous to us, but the Bible and specifically the book of Colossians challenges us to actually find our personal identity in the identity of another, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
to seek and find ourselves actually in that which is eternal, that which is highest, that which is grandest. And the book of Colossians, really we could say, is a book on Christian identity. Uh, What is the new identity that we obtain in and through the Lord Jesus when we place our faith in him? And so in the coming weeks and months, we're going to be looking at this letter and what it has to say about who Jesus is and the new identity that we have been given in him. Now here at Grace, we love to just work our way through books of the Bible, verse by verse, section by section. And when we are looking at these epistles, these letters of the New Testament, it's important for us to remember that these were letters written by real people to real people in real time and in specific circumstances. And by understanding how this letter was written and why it was written, we actually gain a deeper appreciation and a deeper understanding of why this book is here and what this book is all about. And so this morning, I want us simply to do sort of an introductory overview of what is Colossians and what are we in for? We're just going to look really at the first two verses this morning, verses one and two, is going to answer for us the who and the where of this book. Then we're going to look more broadly at the book as a whole, considering the why and the what. So who, where, why, what, when it comes to Colossians. Who wrote it, where was it written to, why was it written, and what is in it. So we're going to start with the who. Verse 1 introduces us to who this letter was written by. If you take a look at verse 1, we read... Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. This letter is one of Paul's letters. Uh, Paul actually wrote 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. That's about a quarter of the New Testament. And he was one of the apostolic figures in the church. Now, we throw the word apostle out quite a lot. We use it. We talk about the apostles. We, We use the word apostolic. But oftentimes, we use that word without really considering what it means. Who were the apostles? At a basic level, the word apostle is just the Greek word for messenger. But when we're talking about the apostles, capital A, we're talking about specially appointed men who met particular credentials and qualifications for a unique purpose and time within Christianity. Sometimes you hear people today, Christians today, say that they have the gift of apostleship or that they exercise an apostolic ministry. I would want to challenge those folks to be careful in their claims about that because when the Bible speaks about apostles, it's talking about unique individuals for a unique time in Christianity. Uh, First of all, the apostles, we can read, if we go back to Mark's gospel uh, in chapter 3, if you remember back in chapter 3, verse 14, we read that Jesus appointed 12, the disciples, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and send them out to preach. These were men who were specifically and specially appointed personally by Jesus. In the beginning of church history, when we read in the book of Acts and we read about the apostles choosing what man would fill Judas's place after Judas had betrayed Jesus and then committed suicide, 
Peter lays out the credentials that that next man would have to meet to be an apostle. And in uh, chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, he says, must be one of the men who accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. He goes on to say that this individual must have been an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus. Now, if you know the story of Paul's life, you know that he was specifically and specially appointed by Jesus, but that he had not actually been a follower of Jesus during Jesus' life and ministry. In fact, I think Paul is very careful in verse 1 to make the point, if you look again, he calls himself an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Because if you know his life story, you know that he was absolutely against Jesus and all the followers of Jesus before God radically changed his life. Uh, his conversion and calling was one that was uh, dramatic, amazing, radical. In Acts chapter 9, we discover that Paul was actually a terrorist against Christianity in the beginning of his, uh, of his life as a, as, a, as a Jewish man. And he was on his way to the town of Damascus, literally to go and persecute Christians, when on the road, Jesus appeared to him in all his shining glory, blinding Paul and calling him to his service. And Jesus said in that occasion, he said, Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And so Paul became a follower of the Lord Jesus, turned from a terrorist to totally committed to the Lord Jesus Christ and the message of the gospel. In Galatians 1, as he's telling his testimony in the beginning of that book, uh, he, he talks about how the message that he received was from no man, but came directly from the Lord Jesus himself. And then he has this beautiful saying where he says, it's been said in the church that he who used to persecute us is now preaching to us. And he says, they glorify God because of me. Paul's life had been radically upended, radically changed, and when he was called and converted by Christ, Jesus said, you will see how much you will have to suffer for the sake of my name. And Paul did radically suffer for the gospel. Uh, if we would go to 2 Corinthians and look in chapter 11, for instance, he gives us his resume of persecution. And starting in verse 24, he says these words, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches." So Paul lived a pretty easy life. This is a man who deeply suffered for the cause of the gospel. 
And actually, as he is writing the book of Colossians that we are going to study together, we see that he is actively suffering as a servant of Jesus. He tells us in Colossians chapter 4, verse 3, that uh, he speaks about the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. So as we read these words, we're reading a prison letter written by a man who is speaking under the authority of the Holy Spirit, recording for us God's word, a man who took hits for Jesus and has a lot to teach us. Well, that's the who. What about the where? Uh, Where was this book written to? If you take a look at verse 2, he tells us he's writing to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. He's writing to the church in the ancient city of Colossae. Now, we don't know much about this city, and we actually don't know much about this church. Uh, We do know that this was not a church that had been planted by Paul, though he had planted many churches himself. We're actually pretty sure that he never even visited this church. So the question would be, how does Paul have a connection with this church that he did not plant and that he had never visited? His connection was through a man named Epaphras. And we're introduced to this man in verse 7. Who is Epaphras? He was a missionary church planter in in his hometown of Colossae. And he was also uh, in Paul's uh, network of ministry partners. If you look at verse 7 of chapter 1, Paul says uh, to these Colossians, You learned it, the gospel, from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. How did Epaphras come to know Paul? How did Epaphras come to be a believer in Jesus? Most likely, uh, Epaphras came under conviction of his sin and came to be a convert of the Lord Jesus during the time that Paul was doing his two-year evangelistic stint in the city of Ephesus. Uh, We're told in Acts 19, verses 9 through 10, that Paul reasoned daily in a place called the Hall of Tyrannus, and that this went on for two years so that the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. I love the picture of this, this no-name man, this ordinary man, Epaphras, leaves his, you know, quite... Uh, unremarkable city of Colossae, and he makes his way into the big city of Ephesus, maybe to do some business. And as he's walking down the streets of Ephesus, he hears all this clamor, all this name being spoken. Hey, hey, have you heard Paul yet? Hey, have you been to the hall of Tyrannus to go hear Paul's talks? Hey, are you going this afternoon to go to listen to Paul? And so he follows the crowd, finds a seat, And he's probably thinking he's going to see some extraordinary speaker. And this ordinary man, who looks like he's taken quite a lot of blows in his life, starts to talk about this amazing story of the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And as Epaphras listens, the Holy Spirit opens up his heart to trust in the Lord Jesus for salvation. And what does he do? He becomes a disciple of Paul. And Epaphras took this gospel message home to his home city in Colossae. And as a result, Paul is able not now just to write to ordinary old Colossians, but in verse 2, he's able to address them now as saints and faithful brothers in Christ. They live in a kind of burnout town. 
an insignificant little city, but they're far more important than just being in Colossae. They are now in Christ because the gospel has come to bear through one of their own. They are saints and faithful brothers. Now, isn't that how God continues to build his kingdom to this day? Think about the people that have influenced your life, the people that God brought into your life, it seems almost at random. And maybe it was a grandmother, maybe it was a coworker, maybe it was a friend, maybe you were raised in a Christian family and those folks took time to share with you the truth of the gospel and God used them to bring you to himself. And now it's our turn. He has set us down in Lancaster in a particular place around particular people in particular circumstances so that we might now take up the message of the gospel and continue the building project of God's kingdom. Epaphras, we're going to learn, the pastor of this church was a man, first of all, faithful in prayer. Uh, when we finally reach chapter 4 about 15 years from now, uh, we will see that he strove in prayer uh, he was a faithful pastor. Not only did he plant the church in Colossae, but he also uh, planted churches in Laodicea and Hierapolis, and he was also faithful in persecution. If we would go to Philemon and look at verse 23, we would discover that, Paul, that uh, he became a fellow prisoner with Paul himself. And that kind of actually takes us to the why of this letter. Most likely what happened, the circumstances of how this letter was written, was that Epaphras went to Paul in prison to go and visit him and to encourage him and give him an update of how things were going in the churches. And I'm sure as Epaphras showed up, Paul said, Epaphras, it's so good to see you. Tell me, how are the good folks at Colossae doing? Tell me, how is the church going? How are the brothers and sisters there? And as Epaphras begins to share, there's a lot that makes Paul super thankful, but there's also a lot that raises concerns in Paul's heart, concerns for the integrity of the Colossian Christians' identity as saints and fellow brothers in Christ. We're not sure whether in this letter Paul is being reactive or proactive to concerns that he sees, particular influences that were impacting the church, but we can read things like, for instance, if you look at uh, chapter 2, chapter 2, he employs these warnings in verse 8, he writes, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Drop down to verse 20 of chapter 2. He goes on and he says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. 
Paul is writing to ground the Colossian Christian's identity not in outside influences, but to protect their identity by grounding it in the Lord Jesus himself. The, the context of where the Colossians were is so relevant and so similar to where we are in our day. Uh, they were situated along a major highway in the neighboring cities of Ephesus and Laodicea, and people from all over the Roman Empire would stop by as a pit stop to their little city, all with their different backgrounds, all with their own philosophy, all with their own religion, and they would bring their influences to bear. Doug Moo had this great comment in his commentary talking about the background. He said, Colossae was a place where many different religious and philosophical viewpoints thrived and probably mixed together. It was very complex with many religious, philosophical, and cultural movements jostling for attention. When I read that, I thought, just take out Colossae was and put in America is, and that's totally us today, complex many religious, philosophical, cultural movements, all jostling for attention. We live in the day of social media and 24-7 news and entertainment. Everyone bringing their worldview, everyone bringing their point, viewpoint, everyone bringing what they think is most important to bear and getting their message out to anyone at any time in any place. Tim Keller said recently, uh, these, right before he died actually, in a talk that he gave, he said, right now, the culture is discipling your kids. And I would want to say discipling all of us, not just our kids. And he says, here are three statements that the world is giving you through social media, through your favorite show, through the music you listen to. Three statements. One, you've got to be true to yourself. Two, in the end, you've got to do what makes you happy. And three, nobody has the right to tell anybody else what is right and what is wrong. I think Tim Keller's right. We're living in the your truth culture of individualism. Pursue what pleases you. Pursue self-fulfillment. And I think that message has even made its way into the Christian scene here in America. I sense it in my own heart. Do you sense it in yours? A prevalency to be self-oriented, to be self-focused, rather than God-oriented and God-focused. And, and how, can these, how can these influences be remedied? Only by being reminded of who Jesus is and being grounded in him. R.C. Sproul said recently, in a, recently, he, he's not recently, because he's passed away, but in recent history, he was asked, what is the greatest battle that the church is fighting in our day? What, what would your answer be to that question? Greatest battle that the church is fighting today. His answer surprised me. With, without blinking an eye, this is what R.C. said. He said, that's a no-brainer. It's the battle that the church has had to fight in each and every age of its existence. Who is Jesus? And what has he done? 
Because getting Jesus right according to Scripture influences everything else in understanding who we are in Him and the lives that we are to live according to His truth. And so Paul, uh, writing to a church that's living in a mixed bag culture, influenced by the spirit of the age, he seeks to combat all the influences that are seeking to invade their God-given identity in Christ by writing a beautiful, compelling, majestic portrait of the all-sufficiency and supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ, holding up Jesus in all his glory to understand who we are through our faith in him. Again, Doug Moo says, the key religious theme throughout Colossians is the centrality and supremacy of Jesus. The Christology, that is the teaching about Jesus in Colossians, is eminently practical. It has to do with the everyday existence of our lives, providing the basis on which Paul can claim that genuine spiritual experience can only be found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. It seems so counterintuitive to our age, but the key to a self-fulfilling identity is actually to find our identity not in ourselves, but in another, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to go on this journey together. Who wrote this book? Paul. Where was it written? To the Christians in Colossae. Why was it written? To ground our identity in Christ. And then that leaves us with the what. As we go on this journey, what is Paul going to teach us as we make our way through this book? Let me give you a broad overview of what Paul is doing here uh, before we wrap things up. When we look at chapter 1, Paul is going to begin by teaching us who Jesus is and who we are in him, essentially the gospel message. What did Jesus come to do? What has he accomplished? And who are we when we place our faith in him and are given this radical new identity? In chapter 2, he's going to move on and tell, tell us about the influences that endanger our identity in Jesus, helping us to know what are the red flags that we have to look out for, what are the things that should be the warning signs in our own day and age so that we can stay true to the Lord Jesus and our identity in him. And then when we get into chapter 3 and 4, Paul's going to bring it down to the practical level, and he's going to show how we can live out our Christian identity in the everyday. He's going to start by telling us what it looks like to pursue a basic life of godliness. He's going to tell us what it looks like in Christ to be good husbands and wives, to be good children and good parents, to, to work in a way that pleases the Lord Jesus in our occupations, and also showing us what it looks like to live together and pursue ministry together as a church family. And as we look at this book, I think it is going to be a great test for each one of us and for the integrity of our church as a gospel Bible-believing church. Because as Mark Johnston says, he said the acid test of the spiritual health of a church is whether or not Christ is at its heart. Not just in some vague and general sense, but Christ in all his glory as he is set before us in God's word. And so we're going to throw ourselves up against the test of Colossians and see how much 
are our lives actually Christ-centered? And where might we be just askew a little bit and need to reorient and realign ourselves with the true and living Jesus? And as we go on this journey, we can be sure that there is a blessing in store. Because take a look again at verse 2. Verse 2, what does Paul hope for his readers as they read this letter? He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. As he lays out this glorious image of Jesus, he longs to impart to us grace and peace that can only come through a glorious view of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was Robert Murray McShane, way back in the 1800s now, who had that great quote when he said, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at the Lord Jesus Christ. You look at yourself, you will find nothing there to really give you sustainable joy and hope and fulfillment and happiness and meaning. But turn your eyes to Jesus. Look in his full and wonderful face and the things of this world become strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And so Paul is gonna give us an opportunity to do that, to stare at the Lord Jesus and then to see ourselves not just as we are, but as we are in him, redeemed, forgiven, united to the living Lord. Let's pray.